there have been 17 reporters arrested in the United States so far this year. But arresting a reporter for asking questions? Oh, please. One nation under pod. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Civil Fights, a podcast by the ACLU of West Virginia. I'm Jamie Lynn Crofts and I'm the legal director of the ACLU of West Virginia. And I'm here with my co-host and producer Noah Brzezinski. We started this podcast because we want to try to make sense of legal issues and talk about how erosions of our civil liberties affect everyone. Other things that you will definitely hear me talk about on this podcast, even though they have no relationship to the ACLU, are France, cats, and yoga. My cats are awesome, and you will be hearing about them, so be warned. The ACLU was born in 1920 and has been active here in West Virginia that entire time. Starting in 1920, the ACLU came to West Virginia to represent coal miners who were prosecuted for protesting and trying to organize. So, Noah, I've been doing a lot of talking here, so why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Noah Brzezinski. I'm a public defender in South Florida. At the outset, I want to say I'm not your lawyer and I'm not speaking for my office. You're going to hear me also talk about Northwestern, the ACLU, separation of church and state issues. My personal background is in uh, First Amendment separation law, as well as United States drug policy. In addition to civil rights, you'll also hear me express an interest in cricket, cycling, and hosting snooty dinner parties. In our first episode, we're going to talk about a few scary things that have happened recently. Foremost, Dan Hyman, a reporter in West Virginia, was recently arrested at the West Virginia State Capitol. He's alleged to have gotten too close to President Trump's cabinet secretary, Tom Price. The allegation is that he reached out his phone and repeatedly asked the Secretary of Health and Human Services a question about whether domestic violence qualifies as a pre-existing condition under the president's proposed health care law. Dan Heyman was arrested by Capitol Police as he tried to ask Secretary Tom Price these questions. He was then detained for several hours at the South Central Regional Jail in Charleston, West Virginia, before posting bail. Dan was charged with willful disruption of government processes under West Virginia Code 61619. If you ask me, willful disruption of government processes sounds more like an award than a criminal offense. And the statute declares it a crime if any person willfully interrupts or molests the orderly and peaceful process of any department, agency, or branch of state government or of its political subdivisions. And it makes it that a crime that can be punished by a fine of $100 or six months in jail. I think it's interesting and notable here that Dan was not charged with assault, resisting arrest, or obstruction of justice. Noah, you're a public defender. Is it something you see that police tend to undercharge when they can? No, 
usually it's the exact opposite. More often than not, what a police officer will do when deciding what charges to write on an arrest affidavit or a probable cause affidavit is to list the most serious possible interpretation of what's just happened. Often you would hope then the state attorney, or uh, in some jurisdictions it's called a district attorney, will take a look at the initial police report and whittle down the charges to what they think is most appropriate or what they think they can prove. Yeah, it's just never been my experience that if the police can charge someone with more than one crime, that they would only choose to charge them with one. It it happens, of course. There are police officers who use their discretion uh, very carefully and appropriately, but it is unusual. Uh, Typically, the police officers will write down as much as they believe happened and as much as they believe is necessary to give a prosecutor a full idea of what they saw. And since some of our listeners may not be as familiar with the way the criminal justice system proceeds, do most criminal cases go to trial? No. In fact, uh, very, very few criminal cases go to trial. Uh, There are just far too many cases for everything to go to trial. The risks of going to trial and losing in states like West Virginia and Florida are uh, very large. Often the job of a defense attorney is to negotiate a suitable resolution to a case just as much as it is their job to prepare for trial. So Dan's arrest wasn't the only troubling thing for press freedom that we've seen recently, was it? No, no, it wasn't. There was a reporter in Washington, D.C. who was said to have been slammed against the wall while asking question about the administration's technology policy. And even more recently than Dan's situation, there was a reporter in Montana covering the special congressional election out there who was allegedly body slammed into the ground by the Republican candidate. The situation in Montana was very troubling. And now we'd like to play you an audio recording of exactly what happened into the CBO score, because you know you were waiting to make your decision about healthcare until you saw the bill and it just came out. And, what yeah, you thought and we'll about talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have speak with right Shane, now. please. But you don't. I'm sick and tired of you guys. The last Jesus guy that came Christ. here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. You'd like me to get the hot up here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. You gotta leave. So, that that's the sound of the congressman-elect from Montana beating up a reporter. I'm just, I'm still in disbelief that this is a real thing that happened. Like, I feel like this is something that happens on, like, the SNL parody version of reality and not in real life. Like, this this is a now congressman beat up a journalist for asking a question. That's a real thing that happened in the United States. 
Right. And so the sad truth of it is that this man is going to be a member of the House of Representatives. He's going to be voting on criminal policy. He's going to be voting on tax policy. He's going to be voting about complicated legislation, which the reporter was asking about. But the people of Montana have decided that this man is their voice and he's going to be there. And now we know how at least one Republican congressman feels about violence toward the media. I think it's worth noting that the Republican Party expected to win this Montana race by a much larger margin than they actually did. If I remember correctly, in the end, this man only won by 7%, which in Montana in a congressional race is much, much closer than anyone anticipated. It's also worth bringing up that in Montana, many, many people voted by mail. So many people had already cast their votes in the days and weeks before this incident, before this battery. And I'd be curious to know how many of them are regretting that right now. How many people on the fence in Montana sent in their mail-in ballots voting for this man and when they learned about this violence, wish they could take that back? It's definitely an interesting point, although if you trust Nate Silver, um, he said that it wouldn't have made a difference anyway, uh, (laughs) just based on who had already voted, because also generally the people who are going to vote early and mail in their ballots are people whose minds might not be easily swayed. Um, And I also just want to take this opportunity to plug mail-in voting is a really great thing that makes it so everyone is able to vote even if they can't get off of work on voting day or have an emergency or have to pick their kids up at school. So I don't want the takeaway from this to be that we should do away with mail-in voting. I want the takeaway to be like, wow, how can we make sure this guy upholds the First Amendment now that he's in office? Right. I think I think the takeaway from it is don't hit journalists. You're really not allowed to do that. Don't hit anyone, but definitely don't hit journalists. I think that that's probably just a good tip for everyone. <laughs> right. Don't hit anyone. Certainly <laughs> certainly not if you're being recorded. <laughs> I also want to add earlier today, before we began recording this, I took a look at President Trump's Twitter feed, and he's touting the congressional victory as a big win in Montana. And I think that's celebrating a little bit too much. I think winning by only seven points is something that the Democrats can take a little bit of pride in. And I think it's something that shows the Trump administration and Republicans nationally are a little bit wounded by this situation. Although it frankly horrifies me that it's still being spun as a big win and not, oh my God, we're embarrassed that this is now the new congressman from Montana. Right, right. And and I, I believe some congressional Republicans have called for at least an apology. I don't believe the president of the United States has made any mention about how he feels regarding physical violence against reporters. It, it hasn't... It it hasn't reached my computer yet, and I'm waiting for the president to make some sort of statement about it. It doesn't really shock me that this administration, in this particular climate, would say troubling things or just ignore violence against the press. In this episode, we're going to talk about some very disturbing things that have happened lately and why it's so important that we have a free and unrestricted press. 
we'll be hearing from the West Virginia ACLU policy director, Eli Bomwell, who's going to give us a broad overview of First Amendment law about the situation with Dan Heyman, which we've already previewed, and about the importance of protecting the rights of journalists moving forward. We're also going to talk to museum vice president and veteran reporter Jean Polisinski about what happened to Mr. Hyman and what the climate is right now in the United States for journalists. And we're also going to hear from the man himself, Mr. Dan Heyman, fresh out on bail from jail, awaiting <laughs> the resolution of his West Virginia misdemeanor. Stay tuned. But at some point, uh, I think they decided I was just too persistent in asking this question and trying to do my job. And uh, so they arrested me. All right, I'm here now with my colleague, Eli. Eli works with me at the ACLU of West Virginia. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell our listeners your title and what you do here? All right, well, um, like Jamie said, I work with her. I'm the policy director here at the ACLU of West Virginia. Primarily, that means I'm our lobbyist, so I'm down at the Capitol working with our state legislators, but it also means I do a lot of grassroots advocacy, some policy research, and help with uh, outreach and education um, when the legislature isn't in session. So as you can tell from that description, Eli's a lot nicer than I am. <laughs> what well, I need to be. So I wanted to talk to Eli a little bit about what actually happened with Dan Hyman's arrest and also how we kind of came to be involved in it. Have you ever, have you ever taken any other viral videos? No, that's a first for me. It was, it was kind of bizarre watching the share count jump up as I was um, just filming him talking to the press. I don't know why my cat videos don't do that well. Cat videos always do well. We'll have to look into this. <laughs> so why do you think this got so much attention? Why is this important? Well, because it's really unusual. You know, I actually had, had our intern, who should get a shout-out for, for doing the research for me, um, look into this a little bit. And although there have been instances of police interactions with the press, there's never been anything quite like this, at least that I was able to come up with. So the press gets in trouble, particularly when they protect their sources or when they print information that's supposed to be confidential. That's typically where we see the, the, this area of the law come up. Or if they're in protest zones where they turn violent, sometimes in the confusion they may get ar um, arrested initially. It's almost unheard of that I've seen for a reporter just asking a question, even being aggressive, even being rude, even trying to push through a crowd to not only be removed, but to be arrested and then charged with a crime. And that's, that's really what makes this really unusual to me, is that they couldn't just remove him. They couldn't arrest him and then release him somewhere else. They actually had felt compelled to charge him with a crime. Right, and it seems so far, at least, like they're continuing that prosecution. I, I have not seen any reports of it being dropped. I've heard nothing about it being dropped to date so far. Why do you think this happened? You really have to look at what this administration has said about the media. The fact that all during the campaign, they demeaned the media, they made fun of reporters, they encouraged violence against reporters. Since the, the um, president has been elected, we've seen legitimate media outlets have press credentials revoked from the White House. We've seen 
essentially conspiracy theorists given those press credentials. The president has repeatedly called the media dishonest, repeatedly tried to belittle them and their work. Clearly this is coming from the top. Why is that important for people who aren't reporters? Why is it important for everyone that you know, reporters aren't singled out like this. It doesn't matter whether you've got a Republican or a Democrat in office. Administration officials, public officials, have some things that they don't want to get public. It's the press's job to ask the hard questions, to get in there, to force transparency where, where frankly, officials would rather operate in the dark. That's the, the essential job of the, of the press um, in this country. And when they feel that they are at risk of being arrested, of being charged with crimes, you are really putting a, a damper on their ability to do that job um, and their ability to do that job knowing that they have the protection of the law behind them. So one thing that I've noticed some of, thankfully not a lot, but some, has been people kind of saying that whenever someone in law enforcement or security or an authority figure tells you to do something you must follow immediately with no questions asked. Um, that kind of seems to be what's underlying some of the criticism I've seen of Mr. Hyman. I don't know about you, but I want my reporters to think about whether you know they're being given a lawful order and not just submitting to any type of authority. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I'm going to start by deferring to the legal authority in the room um, in terms of <laughs> when someone can and should defer to police and what police can do if they if they don't. That isn't always the case that people have to obey the police blindly. In fact, they shouldn't. History is full of really bad examples of what happens when people follow authority blindly. But more importantly, I, I agree with you entirely. Reporters have to push that line. And again, you're going to have police who are going to, to try to, to push reporters out of areas where, again, there's violence taking place in the streets and the reporters are trying to see what's going on, where p reporters are being persistent about important questions that politicians don't want to answer. Yeah, and I mean, I don't really care whether it's a politician I like or a politician I hate. I want journalists running up, trying to get close, asking questions, being loud, and trying to get answers to the questions that we all want to know but can't ask. Definitely. And, and again, this this is a trend that I've, I've seen, again, when I, when I was looking at the research that our intern did. When you look at this, there's, there's really not a lot of case law on something like this. And, and after 200 and, and how many years of existence in this country, when you don't have case law on an issue, it's either that it's a whole brand new issue or it's just so outside the norm that we haven't even had to litigate this yet. So... Again, it should be raising a lot of red flags that we're going back and, and looking at something that's so basic and so fundamental. For sure. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> I think I'll leave it there. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Eli, and we'll keep our listeners updated. Thank you. Without information, the self-governing process falls apart.
This is Noah Brzezinski and Jamie Lynn Crofts with Gene Polisinski of the Museum in Washington, D.C. Mr. Polisinski, thank you for talking with us today. Well, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. Can you give us some information about yourself and the museum? Sure. Uh, it's Gene Polisinski, and I'm Chief Operating Officer of both the Museum Institute and the, and the Institute's First Amendment Center uh, for the first part of my life. And actually, right until today, I consider myself a working journalist. I still write a column. But for the last 25 years, I've been associated with the Freedom Forum, a, a nonprofit foundation, and the museum and the Museum Institute, which all help explain, protect, uh, and uh, we hope further First Amendment freedoms. The museum, as its name implies, uh, is uh, uh, one of those places where we hope the public and the press can both talk to each other and that the public gets a better understanding of what a free press does. Uh, the museum and the Museum Institute, which are the, the programs and initiative arm of the museum, we, we do all five freedoms. So we have a religious freedom center, we talk about free press and free speech, and we talk about assembly and petition. And all of those are implicated today in very real ways in our society. But we hope to explain how does the press work, not not in a defensive way, but simply to say these are the you know the good parts and the bad parts at times, the foibles, the falls, so that people understand what's involved in a free press. And I think most people would agree that our system is set up to allow us to be self-governing. Uh, implicit in that, and the founders I think stated this very boldly by including a free press as the only profession effectively protected by the Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights. Um, we have to have information in order to make informed judgments as the, to how we are governed. And that's everything from the candidates we, we elect to temporarily hold an office to make things work to the larger issues of how do we make decisions on very vast programs and, and issues like war and peace and health, taxes. You know, without information the self-governing process falls apart. We can't be there to do all the work to get that information. So I think the founders saw a free press as uh, unruly and at times disappointing and at times delightful as it is, uh, as necessary to get that information on behalf of our fellow citizens. I've always loved that press is the only profession actually included in the Bill of Rights. Can you tell us a little about the history of the press in our country? Well, you know, it starts off with rather the, an amazing uh, fact that they that they did include the press in the way they did because the the, the press of the founders era of the late 1700s was very opinionated. You know, frankly, if we think today's press is biased and opinionated, uh, just go back and read some of that. I think it'd send the average politician today screaming to the basement, crying for mommy. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's a great moment in James Adams' uh, history where Abigail, and this is. I think pretty well verified. Abigail is literally telling him that he's in the paper today, and he's being called a uh, like a mincing royalist, syphilitic, bald-headed bastard. And <laughs> and there's a pause, and she says, "James, not a bad or, or John, not a bad day," um, because I mean he was just vilified in the press of his era. Uh, but all the founders were. Washington decided not to run for an additional term because of the press coverage about him. Um, so we've always had this antagonistic press, but even with that, they saw this necessity of a of an institution outside of the three branches of government that could speak truth to power and do it in various ways. And they believed in the marketplace of ideas, so they, they said, we're going to have as many voices as possible talking to us, but the charge to them in return, really, I think, is the responsibility to write about and report on government 
And out of that mix, the, the citizens will get the information they need. I think they realize you couldn't count on government to police itself, to really watch over itself. Through the years, we developed to a system where you had a move toward so-called objectivity and accountability press. In the, and in the last 50 to 60, 80 years, we've really seen the development of a press which has both prided itself on objectivity, but also has, I think, with the Internet age, moved into an era where if you declare your bias, a la MSNBC and Fox, that satisfies a lot of people who, who are comfortable with it. But again, it's a watchdog function in total that we prize and I think still has to exist for our society to, to be what it is. What did you think when you saw a reporter had been arrested? Well, it's, it's just ludicrous. Um, you know, I, 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 there, there have been these kinds of pushbacks before. I actually was telling a colleague of mine that uh, in the early 70s when I was a young writer uh, at a Midwest newspaper, I went out to cover an accident. And, you know, the, the deputy sheriff threatened to arrest me if I didn't leave the scene immediately. Well, he claimed it was safety reasons. It was an accident on the interstate. And he said I was endangering myself and others. Turned out it was his brother-in-law or some relative who had been in the accident. And he was just trying to prevent me from taking pictures. Um, so, I mean, we've always seen this. But, you know, the difference in some ways is I think today people are emboldened because of the larger attacks on journalism by uh, sometimes by media critics themselves or or. Uh, by people who've made a kind of cottage industry of being media critics, I think often erroneously. And, of course, the tone set by the administration where you know you can't call journalists enemies of the people without seeing some pushback. So I think people are emboldened today to, to maybe do some things that they would have thought about before. But arresting a reporter for asking questions? Oh, please. Politicians, public officials have an obligation, first of all, to speak to the public through the press, and they're not babies. They're used to this. If they didn't want to answer that question in the West Virginia State House or in the FCC, they just don't answer. Uh, and you know, and and that's something reporters have to deal with. You get ignored a lot. So I I think this was overreaction. You know, I I do think there's an element of the sort of perfect storm of concern over security these days. I and mean, we only have to look at London most recently and Paris and Brussels and and Nice and understand why some security people are nervous. But I think in both these cases, both West Virginia and this most recent one in, at the FCC office, um, this is a credentialed reporter who may or may not be familiar to people, uh, identified as a journalist, not shouting some slogan or, or random phrase, but asking a question that's clearly a news question. I mean, come on. You know, this is just an attempt, in my mind, to screen somebody who didn't want to answer questions, and, and these security folks feel emboldened by this general negative attitude toward the press. I think you're right to frame this incident in terms of our original understanding of freedom of the press, because when you have this perfect storm of a journalist approaching a controversial politician, someone with answers for questions which need to be asked, having that journalist arrested feels so out of bounds with our understanding of American law. It's borderline taboo. The thought of arresting journalists approaches the thought of arresting one's political opponents. It just seems so beyond the pale. Well, you know, again, I, I, I tried to put myself in the, face, in the place of the security people. Uh, and I understand that, you know, they have a duty to protect somebody. Nobody wants to be the person who allowed harm to come to the person you're guarding. But, you know, a reporter asking a question is inherently different in my mind and easily identifiable from someone who is shouting a slogan and carrying a placard or who simply rushes up out of the shadows. 
Uh, and I think the training that goes into these circumstances, the ground rules that these people operate under, uh, may need to be re-examined. Uh, but journalists have an obligation to ask questions, and they, they, there's no mention in the 45 words of the First Amendment I can find that says you only get to do that at a press conference, or you only get to do it in a staged media event. Uh, you know, people are subjected to questions. Now, do you, should you stand at somebody's window at three in the morning and shout questions at them? I don't think that's right either. But, um, you know, these are clearly places, public buildings with representatives of the public asking questions about public business of public officials. I don't think you get, should be more, you know, any op- more open than that. Uh, and just either stop and answer the question or stop and say, I don't have any comment. I mean, that's a simple way to deal with it. What we see when things like this happen is a reinvigorated sense of purpose in the criminal justice context. Defense attorneys rally around our social justice flag, and we're emboldened with the sense that now we just need to fight harder. I wonder if you've seen any similar changes in journalism. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, because I I think that uh, journalists often are very uncomfortable being the story. And so often you don't see what goes on in the profession. I think Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, put it best. I think the attitude from most journalists has been what Marty said. We're not at war. We're just at work. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's a, a, maybe a, a mentally a recommitment to the idea that we're there to bring people accurate, clear, concise information presented fairly, uh, that gives people the information they need to self-govern. I think that Recommitment has come along in the profession. Uh, you know, there's no question that that I think over over time, journalists feel less appreciated by the public than they wish they were. But I, you know, I also have to say that the antipathy to the press and concerns about press bias really predate Trump. We do a survey every year called State of the First Amendment, and the concerns about press bias being, and I think being fed by politicians largely, uh, began 20, 25 years ago. Um, it was a convenient political tool, and then you you can go back to Nixon, uh, you know, and his old enemies list, and and uh, some ways, the current administration language being an echo of that. You know, uh, Spiro Agnew, the vice president, had these wonderful moments. Uh, uh, although he later, of course, convicted, pleaded guilty to a crime, he had these wonderful moments of alliteration. Nittering the bobs of negativism was, I believe, a description for the press. Uh, but it, it, you know, it sent that same message. These people can't be trusted, and uh, you know, it's a very convenient political ploy. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it has no substance. But what's nice is I think that many Americans, whether they supported Donald Trump or not, whether they supported Hillary Clinton or not, are beginning to suddenly realize, you know, we need somebody outside government to tell us what's going on because we're getting two different messages from two different parties. Who's right? Well. Turn to, a, turn to a journalist and say, find out for me. And that's really what I think is happening again in some ways. It's a very positive trend in that sense, although, uh, frankly, I'd rather not have gone through what we've gone through to get here. Now, if I may, just one thing that I do think that is important to point out is that these two reporters are doing something that I think journalists need to do more of. So they don't sound – I'm not a show for the, the profession. Uh, you know, I think in the search of eyeballs in a new world uh, – where it's, you know, the clicks are what count. A lot of news outlets have turned to, you know, what's the latest Kardashian story? They've gotten away from institutional coverage. One of the factors I found really intriguing is these two reporters in West Virginia and at the FCC hearing, 
they were doing so-called institutional coverage. One was covering a hearing, I think, on net neutrality, and and I believe the reporter in West Virginia was trying to get some information about the health care program. Um, you know, that's institutional coverage. That's what you expect reporters to do. Uh, and it wasn't out there advancing a political line. It was just trying to get basic information. So uh, I'm I'm even more appalled by what happened because. I don't. I think whether you consider press bias or talking heads on cable TV to be worthy of your admiration or not, these two journalists are out there trying to get core information on two very important subjects that I want to know. We've talked a lot today about why the press is important. What can regular people do to support the amazing work journalists are doing right now? Well, uh, it, it, it's going to sound a little simplistic, but subscribe. <laughs> you know, I think we've gone through this period where people kind of assume news fell out of the sky free and, and you know, real serious journalism doesn't just happen. And frankly, I think the other thing is to, is to be sure you're getting outside that thought bubble. Seek out people with whom uh, you may seem to disagree, uh, if only to be better prepared to argue against them. So there's a little responsibility on the part of the consumer to do their own work, but also then to help support the people who do the work on their behalf. What are some things you'd like our listeners to know about the museum? Well, I, I hope that if you come and visit us in Washington or come to our website, the cleverly named museum.org, um, you're going to find accurate information about how the press does its job, information about core freedoms. Also on the museum ed side, uh, our education side, you're going to find discussion of issues about news literacy and how to tell fake news from real news. And So use this as a tool to educate yourself and come see us in Washington when you're here at 6th and Penn because you're going to walk away, I think, understanding journalism better. We're not going to tell you what to think, but I hope we'll provoke you into thinking. Thank you, Mr. Polisinski. I think that's great. Uh, we really appreciate your time, you coming on our show, and everything you and the Newseum do to protect the First Amendment. Well, uh, thank you for, for allowing me to have this conversation with you. You know, it's pretty clear to me that they've been trying to avoid answering questions about this healthcare legislation. And now I'm going to talk to the man who started all of this trouble, Dan Hyman. Dan, can you tell me a little about yourself? Well, I'm um, a reporter based in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, I am a regular contract employee of the Public News Service. Uh, I also uh, am a stringer for the New York Times and do some other freelance work. How long have you been a reporter? I've been a reporter since I got out of college some eons ago. <laughs> uh, actually, I've been uh, working, getting paid to do reporting for... 30 years, amazing as that may sound. That's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, how long have you been with Public News Service? I started with PNS uh, in around 2009. And can you tell me a little bit about Public News and what its mission is? Right. Well, the, the objective of the Public News Service, uh, it's a bit of a new model. I mean, those who pay attention to the journalism world realize that the business models have all been thrown into the air, and this is uh, a very smart idea. Uh, our founder, Lark Corbell, founded the Public News Service 
realizing that there was a great hunger for content. And so we provide free content to media outlets in as many different ways as possible. And the overall objective beyond this was to get stories that were not making it into the press and give them more coverage. So, for example, we'll do a lot of work with nonprofits like the ACLU. And it's, uh, it's, it's worked out surprisingly well. Uh, somebody called it the uh, most important network you've never heard of. <laughs> and uh, we, I think, uh, Lark, someone at the central office has been saying that we're consistently hitting 40 audiences of 40 million a week. You've been a reporter for a long time. Have you covered stories like this at the Capitol before? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I um, what I, I mean, we can get into what what happened, but uh, this is really nothing unusual. What I was doing was very standard, uh, and you really take any opportunity you can get, especially if you're having a hard time getting information or comment. And this was an instance where Secretary Price. Tom Price, the Federal Department of Health, you know, DHS, Department of Health Services, Human Services, whatever it is, uh, was in Charleston for a meeting. And so I was trying to ask him a question on the way to that meeting. Now, before we get too deeply into the specifics of what happened, this is, as I said, standard practice. As I've as I put it in other places, I told CNN that anyone who's been in this profession more than about a week has asked a public official a question in a public place, you know, about an issue of public policy as they're kind of walking by, and and so this is a, a basic tool that journalists do or use all the time. Right. What actually happened leading up to when you were arrested? Right. Well, I was working on a, had been working on a story about the impact of Trump Care, mm-hmm. the American Health Care Act, which is the repeal and replace for Obamacare, the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. I was looking at the impact of that on folks who might have pre-existing conditions. Notably, I was interested in whether or not we were going to return to the situation where women who were victims of domestic violence might have trouble getting health insurance that they could afford because domestic violence or the outgrowth of domestic violence, physical injuries or mental injuries, could be considered a pre-existing condition. Now, there was some discussion of this before the Affordable Care Act was passed, and I covered that extensively, written more healthcare stories than I can even hope to imagine. But that all became a moot point uh, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And I was, had been trying to figure out what was going to happen after, you know, if this new healthcare law allowed states to waive that prohibition against providing insurance or providing insurance at the same price for folks who had pre-existing conditions. So it's a rather complicated, I think, but important issue of public policy there. And I wasn't getting a clear answer, was having some trouble getting some, you know, getting the information. 
And I read in an email that uh, Secretary Price, Tom Price, the DHS secretary, was going to be attending a private meeting in the state capitol that was, you know, was going to be close to the public, but he was going around the country on a different issue. He was ta talking about the opioid crisis, and, but that he was going to be in the state capitol dealing with, you know, these, this other issue. And since it was a public place, I figured I'd try and catch him on his way into the meeting and try and ask him about this. Because as I said, I'd been having some trouble getting the information, getting clear and, you know, uh, applicable information, usable information from the, the federal government about this. So I waited for him to come in. I went through security and then, you know, there's a main entryway. There's a long hallway that bisects the rotunda mm -hmm. on the ground floor. And I waited in that inside the doorway leading into that hallway because that was it was clear that that was where he was going to come in. And he came in with an entourage. And to make a long story short, I um, I held up my phone, turned it on to record the conversation, held up my phone. I asked him about this pre-existing condition issue, asked him several times, and the... Uh, the Capitol Police arrested me, basically. Did they know you were a journalist? Well, I was wearing my press pass, mm -hmm. uh, so they should have. And after I was, you know, after they first pulled me aside, I said, hey, I'm a reporter. So they did know before they, you know, formally arrested me. But while they were, you know, handcuffing me, the first time, they, um, I told them I was a reporter and I was just doing my job. Uh, so, yeah, they, they did know I was a reporter. Um, I was also wearing a shirt that said public news service, but it had been raining, so I had my jacket on, and I'm not sure they, they could see that. When they first pulled you away, did you know you were going to be arrested? Well, pretty quickly, yeah. I mean, I, I asked them, you know, what's, mm -hmm. am I under arrest? You know, am I free to go? Uh, fairly soon after that, and they pulled me aside and put took took me into a room mm -hmm. where the uh, police have their their offices. And certainly by the time they had pulled me, you know, taken me to that room, handcuffed me, and taken me to that room, I asked them what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, we had some had some discussions, shall we say, with the officer uh, arresting me. And yeah, it was it was clear I was being arrested. So what happened next after they first pulled you away into that room? Uh, were you held there for a while? I was, and there was some um, procedural stuff. So, for example, I said, if you're arresting me, how come you haven't read me my Miranda rights? And they said, uh, you know, we, we're not asking you any, any questions. And I said, I want a lawyer. Oh, note to our listeners: Always say that if you're arrested. <laughs> yeah, if the if the police, yeah, is a cheap cheap piece of advice worth everything you you know pay for it. If you're ever arrested, say nothing except I want a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I I they left me my phone and I sent a bunch of emails and made a couple of phone calls, uh, and then they took my phone away from me, and I. Uh, you know, so I guess they assumed that I was uh, reaching out to 
you know, to see if somebody could find me representation. I don't think they were, they didn't specifically say, you know, here's your cell phone, call your lawyer. But, uh, you know, that was more or less how it worked out. Right. So were you brought before a judge or a magistrate? I was brought before a magistrate. It took a while, you know, there's this processing and, you know, back and forth with the police. They threatened me with, uh, you know, assaulting a Secret Service agent and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, I said, uh, you really want this to be in the news? You know, as it turns out, it, it was, is, has been. But, uh, you know, there there was a lot of stuff. And then they fingerprinted me and held me and then eventually you know they they first they read me my rights and then they there's always paperwork in this kind of situations and then they uh eventually took me down to the county courthouse where they put me in a holding cell then did arraign me in front of a magistrate and he said you know you're being held on uh you're 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 arrested for uh misdemeanor of disrupting a governmental process uh and we can talk about that that charge uh, and what the criminal complaint said in detail, but I was charged with that. It's a misdemeanor. Uh, I, when I was arrested, I heard a, a potential year in jail and $5,000 bond and $500 fine. Uh, my lawyer later said that that really translates to six months and, you know, $100 or $250 fine is a potential um charge, you know, what the charge would be worth. Yeah, that's my reading of that statute as well. Right. I found it interesting that you were charged under that statute for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I don't understand what government process it was that they're alleging you disrupted since right. this happened in a hallway as people were walking past. Well, that's, uh, I mean, there, there are a number of things about the charge and the complaint that I think are interesting. And my lawyer has said uh, that he feels like this is excessively broad, that this is a very broad statute and it really leaves a lot of room for abuse especially given, as we were saying, that this is a public place and I was a public person asking a public servant a public qu public policy question. Right. right. And and it is, I mean, first of all, it's, this, it's a state statute. So it says disrupting a state government process. And this was, of course, a federal official. Yes. Uh, we come back to who, you know, they were saying I was disrupting, but, but for, for first of all, to deal with the fact that it was a, a federal officials and uh, that the process that I was disrupting was them walking towards a meeting. So as my lawyer has said rightly, I think, what, you know, what governmental process is this that I was disrupting? What state governmental process was I disrupting. Another thing that was interesting about this, if you read the complaint, it said that I was disrupting this process by shouting out questions. And it's interesting that you can be charged uh, with a crime for shouting out questions. And that's, I think that's really the, a key thing that has made a lot of people really outraged about this arrest. And, and there's a lot more to say about this. Notably, for example, 
that since this is a public place, anybody, and that it doesn't have to be a journalist, but journalists are sort of expected to do this. So it's understood that we're going to be asking questions and we commonly do. But every, anyone can, is allowed, as I was saying, under the Constitution to demand redress of grievances it, from their public servants in a public place. Uh, you're allowed to peaceably assemble. Obviously, you're not allowed to be violent or aggressive towards other people. But like the old saying goes, you know, my right to extend my arm reaches as far as your jaw. And, and that's, you know, gets into some of the sort of peculiarities of what I was charged with. There are some other problems with the, uh, the, the, the criminal complaint. You know, they said, for example, I was pulled away two or three times. Well, I wasn't. This all took place in one hallway in a continuous manner. They noted that it was, uh, you know, that I was uh, being aggressive towards Kellyanne Conway, who was there, who was the reason that there was Secret Service. I, I wasn't really. I mean, I as it happened, uh, while I was trying to reach my phone out to Secretary Price, I kind of backed around his part of the entourage and unintentionally came closer to Kellyanne Conway than I would have if I know she knew she was there, but I didn't know she was there. And the someone, a staffer or a Secret Service said, don't get too close to her. And so I backed away, which is an important point because if the Capitol Police or the Secret Service had said to me, stop what you're doing, stand here, don't ask this question again, don't try to get close enough to Secretary Price, I would have stopped. But I was never trying to get into anyone's space. I was never trying to physically, you know, reach anyone. I was just trying to get my phone close enough to Secretary Price to record his answer. And as a radio reporter, I can tell you that it's really crucial to get decent sound quality. And one of the best ways to get decent sound quality is to get the microphone, in this case, my Android phone, mm -hmm. close enough to the person who's speaking. Another small sort of technical thing is that when you're in this kind of situation, you never really know whether they've heard you, whether they've responded, whether they are just trying to not give you an answer, whether they're, uh, you know, has said something and you didn't hear it. So this is why you try to get as close as possible and why you repeat the question. And this also doesn't seem like it would be something that would be uncommon for either them or the secretary or Kellyanne Conway to deal with. Um, I mean, I, they probably come into contact with reporters who are trying to ask them questions all the time. Probably every day or at least several times a week. I mean, this, this happens constantly. Reporters do this all the time. And in fact, after my arrest, a few days after my arrest, he was talking to some folks in uh, New Hampshire. He said the problem with what I was doing was that I wasn't doing it in a press conference, <laughs> um, which is, you know, um, I, there's a couple of things that's wrong with that. One is, uh, of course, the First Amendment doesn't just apply to press conferences. Number two, after this meeting, he did hold a press availability where he answered a grand total of four questions about opioid abuse. He and and it's you know it's pretty clear to me that they've been trying to avoid answering questions about this healthcare 
legislation. Later on, he was talking to a radio talk show host, uh, Hugh Hewitt, who asked him, was this guy, this gentleman, i.e. me, uh, menacing to you in any way? And he said, no, not really. You know, um, but, the, you know, I, I agree. I support the police and I agree with what they did. And, you know, it's their decision. But no, I wasn't really menacing, which to my mind is the whole that's the whole ball of wax, because the point behind security is there to protect his safety. They're not there to protect him from uncomfortable questions. And he, you know, I think if you dig into his comments since this happened and you really read between the lines, you realize that he didn't think this was a big deal either, mm -hmm. that he didn't think that this was anything unusual or threatening. And, um, and that's, you know, it's interesting that they, they've even bothered to, to do this and why they have is an interesting question. And as a civil rights attorney, I just want to say that the fact that you were charged with disrupting a government process and right. not something like assault, I think, really says a lot because police don't generally undercharge people. It's very easy to be charged with things like resisting arrest, and you weren't charged with anything like that. They did say, the, the cop who arrested me said that they were considering upping the charge to uh, assault on a Secret Service agent, which is pretty, going to be pretty uh, ridiculous, although it's a pretty, that would be a more serious charge. Um, but as my lawyer said, um, if the Secret Service felt I was a problem, they would have arrested me. Exactly. And they didn't. The, they, um, I think that there was... Uh, what I was told by the police officer is that they, the Secret Service nodded to them, in other words, get this guy away from here. But the Secret Service didn't, you know, I'm sure that they deal with people shouting out questions every day. I, I wonder why the Capitol Police took it on themselves and have maintained this charge, haven't, you know, gone, haven't asked that it be dropped. Right. I, a lot about this surprises me you know, any of this happened. But second of all, even, you know, after you were pulled away, they didn't have to charge you with a crime. Right. And even after you were charged, they could have dropped those charges. Right. Um, and so I've just been really surprised to see that this is continuing. It's hard for the police to back down. Once they start doing something, then they feel like it's their responsibility to fulfill that goal, even when it's not necessary. And that, that, I think, comes into play here. You, we won, I wonder if the Capitol Police weren't maybe being excessively security-minded because they were having federal officials in the building, which is not something that happens all the time. I'll just add that um, I have had a personal experience with the Capitol Police where they were definitely uh, unaware of some of the First Amendment issues with what happened. Uh, so we had um, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was being debated in our legislature last year, and a local company made T-shirts that said, Fuck HB 4012, which was the, the number of the bill. And I was with someone wearing one of those shirts at the Capitol last year, and he was actually told he had to take off his shirt and turn it inside out or immediately leave the Capitol grounds. 
And for our non-lawyers who might be listening, there actually uh, has been a United States Supreme Court case about a man in a courthouse wearing a T-shirt that said, fuck the draft during Vietnam. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's protected speech. Um, So for me, this was horrifying, but... Not all that surprising. Yes. Well, I mean, I do think that there's a an element of Keystone Cops that once they start down this path, it's very hard for them to back down. There was an incident where there was a uh, reporter, a very respected reporter covering the FCC on a very contentious, another contentious hot button issue where maybe the public officials didn't necessarily want to talk about it. He was cover- He was at a press conference and was trying to ask a question of an official who was either, I don't remember whether it was on his way to the podium or leaving the podium. And the security there at the FCC just basically boxed him out, held him up against the wall, stopped him from asking this question, and then he said basically, you know, roughed him up and threw him out of the building. There was a reporter in Montana who was also asking about the health care bill of a candidate for uh, Congress in Montana who committed assault on that reporter, broke his glasses, threw him to the ground. Mm -hmm. But what we're obviously seeing in all three of these cases, and I think the reason that people have been reacting to these so strongly, is because these were all instances of reporters asking questions in what is an entirely reasonable and professionally recognized manner. I think what's scary to me is that I, this is what I want reporters to be doing. Yes. I think people, a lot of people have had exactly that reaction. Are you afraid that events like this might chill reporters from asking the tough questions? I really don't, given the public response, because I was really, well, for, I was astonished to be arrested, but then I was astonished to, to see the response. I mean, I, the, the, uh, The heat on social media has been intense, Mm -hmm. and the level of support from other reporters, even at conservative news outlets, because this is really, uh, it's nearly sacred. I mean, I think to a lot of people in this country, the Constitution, especially the First Amendment, is a, a, you know, a bedrock principle of of almost a form of, you know, as I said, nearly sacred, sort of a secular, sacred document. And they, they, you know, people have really stepped up to defend it and to support us. The Washington Post said that my arrest sent a chilling message. Uh, there was a Twitter hashtag that was on, you know, found on, you can find on Twitter still, I guess, called Free Dan Hyman, which I think was a little ridiculous because I, I spent all the, you know, an afternoon and p- part of an evening in jail. So it wasn't, you know, it's not like I'm, uh, you know, not like I'm in uh, Kazakhstan or something and being locked away without right to counsel or something. The, the press and the public and public officials, public servants, their relationships go through ebb and flow. You know, we have this uh, love-hate relationships with with public office holders. And that, you know, there's a push-pull there. They use us, we use them. We try to get what we want. They try to get what they want. And and those things eventually, you know, sort of hash out. But I think that the, the, the level of 
attention to these cases, not just my case, but the other cases like it, is really suggestive to me that uh, that um, the public is not going to stand for an erosion of the freedom of the press. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, the, I've said a number of times that I think that why my arrest caused so much attention is because it seemed to confirm, as you were saying, everyone's worst fears. You know, there's a lot of antipathy towards reporters. Sometimes we deserve it. <laughs> you know, but as you said, this is what people want. They want reporters to be aggressive. They they recognize that we are sometimes jerks, but that that comes with the territory and that we want reporters who are, who, who are capable of doing that. But I don't necessarily think that there is some kind of conscious policy or, you know, a memo didn't come down from the White House saying keep reporters away from Tom Price. Mm -hmm. I don't think that this there's a, uh, you know, a conspiracy to, to undermine the First Amendment. It's just kind of a drift. You know, it's one of these things where... Uh, there's these tensions and these arguments that can be made on either side, and it just kind of leans in one direction. But that has really caused a lot of people to become very concerned about it, and I think that public concern is what gives me confidence that our uh, the freedom of the press and the freedom of free speech and peaceable assembly and public right in public places to peaceably assemble and to uh, demand redress of grievances uh, is you know, is going to be defended in this country. I've been very proud to see that the vast majority of people talking about both your arrest and the incidents in Montana and at the FCC, most people talking about it are very supportive of the journalists, regardless of whether they're on the left or the right. I think that's true. I mean, they're um, a friend of mine. I I really make a point not to read the online comments section <laughs> for news articles or whatever. I, I really, you know, you go there at your peril. There be dragons, as it were. But a friend of mine was following my case, and he said he was actually reading the online comments. And he said it seemed to be running about 85% in favor with, you know, 15% critical more or less. I mean, that's, you know, it's obviously unscientific. But what that says is that even conservatives who might not like me or my coverage or, you know, might have questions about my news organization are, are defending our right to do this. And, you know, I've been following since my arrest, I've been trying to publicize and follow uh, and may eventually do some reporting about the situation in countries where they don't have this deeply entrenched tradition mm -hmm. of a free press. So, for example, in Mexico, uh, there have been, I think, six reporters murdered uh, since the beginning of the year. Those people are really putting something on the line. Um, I'm not really too worried about a misdemeanor you know, case. I have a clean record. Uh, I'm not too worried about what might happen to me. Mm -hmm. But... Those folks really do, are really in the trenches running serious risks. This is a warning. You know, this is what happens in countries where the free press is not respected and not defended. And there are countries where you, it, is, it is possible to lose these rights if we don't defend them, if we don't exercise them.
I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me about this. Uh, if any of our listeners want to read more from PNS or more of your work, uh, where should they go? Well, um, I, I or have listen, a sorry. listen. Well, <laughs> both. I mean, you can read it. Uh, the all of the public news service articles uh, and my pieces are available on the public news service website, and they're all broken out by state. And you can follow what I r report about West Virginia and Virginia. Also, I've written an op-ed for the Washington Post, which I, I think turned out pretty well, and I'm about to write something for Vox. This federal legislation, the AHCE, AHCA, the American Health Care Act, Trump Care, um, has the potential to undermine the protections of women, and it's mostly women, uh, not entirely, but mostly, um, who suffer domestic violence, partner abuse, um, to get health care. And... Uh, one last point. I mean, since I was arrested, we at the Public News Service have gotten an enormous amount of support, especially because I was asking about that. There was a woman from here in West Virginia who um, wrote saying that she was terrified that she was going to lose her health insurance if this law passes. And so she was really supportive that I was asking about this for her and her two children, um, and she said she was enraged that I was imprisoned and her ex-husband wasn't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we get a lot, of, we've been getting a lot of support there. Domestic violence advocates have pointed out to me that this is in part important because um, it may be one of these ties that could force a person to stay in an abusive relationship or motivate them to decide to stay in an abusive relationship at the risk of their own health um, if they, you know, if they are afraid of losing their insurance. So, but that, that's, you know, that's really the point is that this is what we do as reporters. We are supposed to work on these issues. We're supposed to find these things out and we have to be able to access public servants to be able to do it. I think that there's a clear pattern that this administration and especially Republicans in Congress, uh, they've gotten burned because there have been a lot of uh, demonstrations and angry town hall meetings and a lot of, you know, uh, pushback on some of these hot button issues like net neutrality, like Trump care. And, uh, and they, they have been, as a part of this, that may be feeding into what's, what's happening. According to the Society of Professional Journalists, uh, they, there have been 17 reporters arrested in the United States so far this year. And um, most often reporters are arrested for, uh, in a couple of ways. They're either arrested because they're covering a demonstration and they're sort of caught up in the, in the net that sweeps up those folks, or they uh, get into trouble with the law because they refuse to reveal their sources to a criminal investigation. That's kind of normal territory. I mean, we're used to that, mm -hmm. right? This is new because we, you know, I was asking a question. I was asking a question. The guy in Montana was asking a question. The guy at the FCC meeting was asking a question. So this is unusual, um, but it's it fits within this pattern that they 
as I said, I don't think there's a memo that came down, we're going to undermine the First Amendment, but there is this tug of war and they've been leaning towards trying to restrict access, which has ended up, you know, uh, you know, threatening our, our access to public officials. Right. Well, thank you so much for what you do. Oh, you're welcome. We talked a bit this episode about domestic violence. If you're a domestic violence survivor, there are a number of organizations that are there for you. If you're in immediate danger, consider whether you should call 911. For anonymous, confidential help, call the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence at 1-800-799-SAFE. You're not alone. for Americans to take the free press for granted. We've had freedom of the press written into our DNA since the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. But if we allow these types of attacks on the free press to continue, journalists' free speech will be eroded and chipped away at until it's just a shell of what it once was. We cannot allow attacks on the press to go unchallenged. If the Trump administration continues to crusade against the press, we once again will see him in court. I hope you enjoyed our first episode. Please stay tuned. Uh, next week, we'll give you an update on Trump's Muslim ban and what its current status is. We hope you'll keep listening as we try to break down legal issues and make them make sense for everyone. Thank you to our guests, Eli Bomwell, Gene Polisinski, and Dan Hyman, Tim Ward for designing our logo, Brian Dezeal and the Pat Gilroy for audio editing and mastering. Music by Titans of Punk, a music production company by Pat Gilroy and Jeremy Galanis. Thank you to the ACLU of West Virginia for letting me do this. Thanks to my cats for mostly being quiet while I was recording at home. Shauna Bray for the name and inspiring me to get involved in podcasting. My parents for teaching me I could be anything I wanted to be. And anyone who's still listening right now. If you enjoyed this episode or just want to contribute to the ACLU of West Virginia, you can do it on the internet at aclu.wv.org and click on the donate button. Thanks again for listening. <music>